Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome. I'm Georgina Wright from the Institute for Government's Brexit team. Brexit is back in the news. We now have less than three months to negotiate a deal, vote on that deal and get everything in place for whatever comes on the 1st of January. A lot of focus has understandably been on trade. There's a very important security dimension to the future relationship. Um, this week, the UK's chief negotiator, Lord Frost, in Parliament said that there had been a lot of progress on the security deal, and we've heard similar noises from Brussels. Um, but like much of Brexit, there is still a lot to be done, particularly on the details front. I'm absolutely delighted to be, to, to be joined by this distinguished panel this morning to discuss the aspects of our future UK-EU security uh, relationship and what we might expect from this relationship going forward. Um, so we have Naomi Long, Minister of Justice in the Northern Ireland Executive, Sir Julian King, who was Britain's last EU Commissioner um, for the Security Union and now a Fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute, Sir Robert Wainwright, who is Director of Europol, the EU's Agency for Law Enforcement Cooperation until 2018 and now a partner at Deloitte, and Patrick Elvar, who is Director General of France's Interior Security and is now a Senior Advisor at the Institut Montaigne, a think tank based in Paris. Hello to you all. So before we start, just a few housekeeping rules. Um, this event will be live streamed um, and it will be held on the record. There will be a recording available after the event, so you'll be able to catch that on all our social media platforms. Um, we will be live tweeting and we encourage you to live tweet as well using the hashtag um, IFGBrexit. And if you'd like to submit a question, please do so. Uh, we have a Q&A monitor who will make sure that I see your question. Right, so we have around 55 minutes now um, to really delve into the details of the UK-EU Security Corporation. Um, and as I said, do keep your questions coming because there'll be plenty of time for them. Minister, um, perhaps I could start with you. Um, Theresa May, as former Home Secretary and Prime Minister until uh, recently, cared a lot about security. And we know that uh, the Prime Minister, in his uh, mandate for negotiations, talks a lot about security. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how Brexit will impact Northern Ireland specifically? Um, and what Northern Ireland is hoping to secure in terms of future cooperation. Well, good morning, um, and I'm very pleased to be able to be part of this panel today. Um, I think for Northern Ireland, there are a number of challenges. I mean, clearly, um, Northern Ireland was not um, in favour of leaving the European Union because I think much of the good cooperation that we have been able to benefit from um, north and South, and also um, the political changes in Northern Ireland have been largely reliant um, on seamless movement and seamless flow of goods and services um, and data and people um, around these islands. And so for us, um, having a land border and that becoming a more prominent issue um, has led to a degree of political tension. And so I suppose the first thing I would have to say is that given the context in Northern Ireland, we are obviously concerned um, about the issue of Brexit or any border checks being exploited by those um, who unfortunately are still wedded to violence. And I think that that is a risk for Northern Ireland in terms of our stability. 
However, on the wider um, security cooperation and the future security partnership, um, we know that the negotiations on that um, have been, I would say, maybe more productive um, than some of the trade discussions have been to date, because I think we all have a vested interest right across um, Europe to cooperate fully when it comes to policing and justice issues, because we know that crime doesn't recognise borders and therefore we can't be impeded um, in our work to create a, a secure future for our people. Um, however, there are issues um, around trade, fisheries and state aid, which could jeopardise the chance of an overall deal, because obviously progress on the security partnership is coupled to getting a deal um, on those issues. So my key concern is that nothing will jeopardise the um, excellent relationships that we already have um, with the Irish Republic um, and also um, with other parts of the EU after the end of the transition period. Um, as you know, those things are important in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, as I've said, um, but are also important in terms of our ability to fight organised crime um, and also terrorism um, on this island and indeed within these islands. So it's an incredibly important and it's been highlighted, I think, by operations recently like Operation Arbacha, which was a multi-agency, um, multi-jurisdictional operation against terrorism um, in, in Northern Ireland and one that was highly successful. So I think it's important that we do that. And I recently met with the Home Secretary um, just to underline my concern at the lack of clarity over the Northern Ireland Protocol and the, the questions that arise from some of the government's um, approach on this and also the impact of the Internal Markets Bill, which could have negative consequences for justice outcomes. Some of the key issues for us around trade and tariff variables um, is that we are concerned that they may be exploited by organised crime. And we have quite an enterprising um, group of people, um, particularly around the border, who are willing to exploit every differential um, in order to try to create um, to create issues in terms of the black market. So we're very keen to try to have a culture of compliance from the very beginning which means clarity for businesses who want to comply, but also, I think, a culture of lawfulness in Northern Ireland, which just needs to be constantly reinforced because of our history. I think that's important. We're working very closely with our justice partners to ensure we're ready for any possible non-negotiated outcome. And we obviously have contingency plans in place, but I think unless we get that comprehensive deal on justice and security, um, the loss of the EU justice uh, measures will be felt very strongly in Northern Ireland. And I suppose in the absence of a deal, we will need to explore bilateral agreements with um, Ireland at the very least, because we, we have issues here that need to be followed up in lifetime on a cross-border issue. And for us, the real challenge at the moment is around data adequacy and sharing, because without that live sharing, um, we will not be able to do policing injustice um, in the way we have to date. And I think that that would be not just a shame, actually, but it would be placing the population in Northern Ireland at considerable risk. Thank you. There's a lot in there that I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to, in particular sort of the bilateral um, uh, potential for a bilateral agreement if there is no deal uh, at the end of the transition period, and also questions around data, which we'll come to. Um, so, Jeannie, perhaps I could turn to you next. Um, you were in charge of the EU security brief. Um, building on sort of what the minister was saying, what in concrete terms would you like, you know, what does leaving the transition period with a deal look like for security? And is that enough, bearing in mind all the things that, that ha are happening right now? Because, of course, the UK was a member of the EU and now still in the transition period. You know, what does that look like on the 1st of January if there is a deal? Well, good morning and thanks for inviting me to this 
excellent colleagues to have this discussion. I think it's very timely because there is a deal to be done in this area. Uh, I, I don't know that it's completely done yet. Uh, there, are, there are various important uh, questions of principle that need to be sorted out around uh, the role or rather the non-role of the court of justice. Uh, what is being done in order to offer reassurances on protection of fundamental rights and data, as we've just heard, and I'm sure we'll come back to that. But if, if you can find a way through on those issues, then uh, there is the possibility of having uh, a new relationship. I mean, obviously, the UK will not be a member state. And so you can't have a relationship like uh, the relationship that we've enjoyed while we were in the European Union. It won't be the same. It will be a dialed down relationship, but it will still be worth having, I think, and is significantly better than the alternative. There are ways in which you can build on various third country uh, precedents that exist uh, to reinforce those, to have a useful partnership between the UK, outside the EU, and uh, the, the systems that have built, been built up over the years to cooperate on these justice and security matters inside the EU. So you can have a relationship with some of the key agencies, uh, Europol, Rob can talk a bit about uh, the benefits that can be had both ways for really good relations um, with third countries. There's an excellent relationship that's lasted for years between Europol and the United States, uh, as one example. Uh, there are some other agencies, Eurojust, that brings together prosecutors, which you can build a relationship with. You can build a relationship with some of the key databases. Maybe not all of them, um, we can come back to that later, but there are some very important databases for exchanging uh, information on fingerprints, DNA, vehicle registration, some of the practical stuff that would make a real difference on the ground, for example, in, uh, in Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. Uh, there's a database for exchanging information on criminal records that's been much used. There are data exchange networks for uh, monitoring who's coming in and out of, of airports. All of those things you can build a relationship with. Uh, and there are some, some instruments, uh, including legal instruments, that you can uh, mirror, even if you don't participate directly in the EU instrument. So one that's often in discussion is, is what are you going to do about extradition? Uh, once you're not a member, you're not in the uh, European uh, arrest warrant. But can you build some sort of cooperation around extradition and surrender of people who you want from another country and that other countries want from, from the UK? Uh, and I believe, yes, there are precedents that you can work with there. And there are various other very important instruments like mutual legal assistance, where you can do better than uh, the rest of the world by having a privileged relationship between the UK outside and uh, the EU member states. So all of those things, I think, are definitely worth trying to secure. Briefly, if I could follow up on that, because you talked about precedent, which is obviously very important and something that the UK and the EU have used um, multiple times uh, throughout these negotiations. But do you think precedents are enough or do you think that the UK and the EU should be more ambitious in terms of their security relationship? Well, I've always advocated, you know, in previous role and since finishing that we should be as ambitious as possible in this area for all the reasons that Naomi's already spelt out. We're talking about uh, shared challenges. Uh, uh, at the hardest end, uh, terrorism doesn't discriminate between whether a country is in or out of the EU or in or out of Schengen. Uh, these are people who are trying to disrupt our way of life. They target our values, which remain shared values. 
uh, all the way through um, the, the fight against serious and organized crime, the fight against uh, cyber crime and other cyber challenges, and I would argue a wider security agenda of trying to uh, build our resilience, our ability to deal with some of these security threats. All of those are shared. There's a shared agenda and it remains shared uh, despite whatever happens in the Brexit, um, the end of the Brexit negotiations. Uh, so I do hope that we can be ambitious, but there will be limits. You can't expect to rebuild completely the level of cooperation that exists between member states because there are constraints. Uh, the UK has said very clearly in this area, as in other areas, that it doesn't want the writ of the European Court of Justice to run. Now, that becomes a constraint on the level of cooperation that you can have. Uh, e even if we manage to reach an agreement on uh, uh, respect to fundamental rights, you you're outside of the network of, of guarantees that exist within the European Union. So the there will be questions there about whether or not there are break clauses which could suspend areas of cooperation or overall cooperation if something, if something is deemed to have gone wrong. And data, data is going to be very complicated uh, and we can talk about it a little bit more. Uh, there will be databases where it, that exist that the UK has been part of up until now, where it's very difficult to imagine once they're outside, once they're outside the, uh, the remit of the ECJ, once they're a third country, that they will be able to continue to have that kind of close engagement. There's one particular database that, that Rob knows well and, and Patrick as well called the Schengen Information System. And I think whatever happens, it's pretty unlikely that the UK is going to be part, continue to be part of the Schengen Information System. That is a big deal. And we'll need to think about alternative ways of trying to uh, do some of the work that that system does at the moment. It's a system that shares alerts between frontline policemen, border guards, immigration officers. It's used billions of times a year. That's billions with a B. Uh, and it's a fantastic network that helps people who are on the front line to do their job to help keep us safe. If we're outside of that, then we have to look seriously at what else we can do to try and backfill that kind of cooperation. Great, thank you. And that sort of is a nice segue, um, perhaps, uh, to you, Sir Rob. Um, you know, you headed one of the EU's most important agencies and, you know, introduced new processes to facilitate the exchange of information across borders. Building on this data point, you know, what are the consequences if there's no agreement on data? How would that impact UK and EU um, cooperation, particularly in law enforcement? Well, uh, good morning. Yes, I think it's important um, just to follow on the point that Julian was making, important that we understand the context here, just how critical information sharing is to the business of law enforcement cooperation across Europe. The lifetime sharing of, of data um, is how criminals and terrorists who are increasing, we know are increasingly moving across borders in Europe and indeed beyond. It's the lifetime sharing of data relating to that movement and their identity is how the criminals get identified and are able to be tracked, and indeed terrorists as well. It's the heart of pretty much all successful police operations in, in this modern age. It was very much at the heart of Europol's ability to grow as an agency and become more relevant to the security authorities of the member states. Europol, over the period that I was there, and has continued since, you know, built a common information sharing unique in the European Union, that now links over 1,000 different uh, law enforcement agencies and teams from around 40 countries. Um, that's, that's a lot of information sharing, lifetime data, 
supporting a lot, tens of thousands of important cases each year um, that, are, that are aimed at, at identifying and indeed disrupting significant criminal and terrorist operations. Now, the UK was a primary player in, in developing that system, in feeding that system with significant amounts of investigative data each year. Um, and indeed, um, apart from that, as, as Julia mentioned, sharing the information system and indeed others, there are very important effect, effective EU systems and databases as well available. So it's, it's become a mainstream way, in a very practical way actually, for how effective policing is done. And not just across Europe, but also in supporting, therefore, investigations um, in, in the country itself. It reflects the globalization of how crime and terrorism has become, that it, it becomes a, a fundamental way in which you can, you can prosecute your business. Um, so, yes, of course, it's very important, therefore, that any agreement keeps that information exchange flowing, at least in large part. Julian gave an example of how it might be difficult to do that in one area like the Schengen Information System. In the case of Europol, it is possible to do. The Europol model indeed does allow for information exchange with non-EU members. I think Julian mentioned the example of the United States. Indeed, significant non-EU member exchanging a lot of data with Europol, and there are others as well, albeit on a much less uh, high volume nature than, than the case with the UK. So I think we're talking about a different order of volume and scale, but nonetheless, it is possible. But there are rules to follow. As the minister mentioned, you know, we have to reach a level of so-called data adequacy with the EU standards on, on privacy, especially. Now, you may have noticed, some of your uh, viewers today will have noticed a ruling earlier this week by the European Court of Justice, which is, isn't going to help much here. It found that certain so-called surveillance powers in countries, including the UK, in fact, which allows authorities to access data, um, is not consistent with general privacy norms. Um, now, that complicates things because that, that will directly affect the extent to which the UK may rely on a data adequacy decision in the future. So yes, I mean, to sum up, Georgina, yes, it's a good question. And I think, yes, this is at the heart of what an effective security agreement looks like. It is pretty vital, frankly. It is very challenging to get right. I think Julian's point, though, on ambition is important here. I think you can't compare the UK's position as a precedent to any other, frankly, even the United States. It's in a pretty special place, given the extent to which it has committed so much of its uh, resources so far to helping other member states. So, you know, we are in a, already a, a unique position, and I hope that sense of ambition on both sides will still get us over the line in large part. Thank you. And yes, you're absolutely right. There was a question from Lord Ricketts there about what the recent judgment meant and how it might impact uh, Brexit negotiations um, on on finding an adequacy um, agreement. Betty, um, you you've been uh, patiently listening in to all of this. Um, you know, so Rob and Sir Julian talked about um, the UK being, you know, we, we should have high ambition for our future uh, security relationship. You know, your view from sitting in Paris, um, obviously UK and France have a strong intelligence relationship. Uh, the UK has made use of a lot of these um, EU databases um, for security. How, you know, on the one hand, Brexit will complicate this relationship, but is it possible for the UK to have a privileged security relationship with the EU? Uh, first of all, I, I would like to, to thank you uh, to have invited me uh, to this uh, panel, and I'm very honoured to be with uh, 
friends and, and minister. Um, I would like to uh, to have a, a general comments about uh, the situation uh, as far as I can understand uh, it is now. Uh, I will speak, of course, on my behalf. I'm not an official channel, and uh, everything I would say would be based on my professional experience. Um, we need to remember that security is indeed a major issue for societies and our fellow citizens today. And uh, the public demand is more and more strong towards our governance. In fact, it's our model of democracy of living together that we, we, we defend. Uh, I will just remember the threat we are collectively uh, uh, facing. They are more and more numerous and complex to deal with. I mean, fight against terrorism, fight against organized crime, against major trafficking first and foremost, drug trafficking, human trafficking, illegal immigration networks. And not forgetting, it's, uh, it's already uh, been said, uh, what is a major challenge, cybercrime. Uh, because we have to know that cyber has become a tool at the service of criminals and terrorists alike. Every one of us who has worked uh, in the police security intelligence services knows how crucial the issue of encryption is now. One well, uh, 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 remark is that given the scale and complexity of the threat and their transnational nature, because crime knows the borders, I think and I'm sure um, that we need more cooperation, not less. And that's a challenge we are facing. This being said, uh, what is the cooperation between the European Union and the United Kingdom within the, the framework of Brexit? First observation uh, I, will, uh, I will make is based on my professional experience. I can tell you that the United Kingdom has always been an essential leading partner in the fight against many of these threats, and particularly against the threat of Islamist terrorism. I know that on the other hand, United Kingdom has a crucial need for its European partners in the field of security because uh, it belongs to the same geographical area in the context of high mobility of people. So we cannot, absolutely, we cannot afford to weaken the capabilities of our respective security forces. The result will be that there will only be losers. For my part, I have always defended the idea that in the Brexit negotiation, we should dissociate economic issues from security issues, which I will also extend to defense issues. If I'm going into detail in the area of police and justice, there are many communitarized tools, such as files, Julian uh, mentioned it, Schengen, uh, DNA or European arrest warrant. We must not hide the truth. Negotiation of a cooperation agreement would be very difficult to obtain for different reasons. Some example at European level, the rights of individuals are not protected by the Court of Justice of the European Union and the European Court of Human Rights, which London no longer wishes to recognize. And we have also to, to bear in mind that uh, we must not forget either that an agreement will require the approval of the 27 member states. It's a long way. But I have no doubt, however, that we will reach an agreement. Once again, because security of our citizens 
is at stake. Our governments are aware that no one would understand if we do not exchange, if we do not cooperate in order to prevent crime or commission of terrorist acts. Their responsibility will be great on both sides of the channel. If now we are speaking about intelligence, as far as intelligence is concerned, things are very different, very different because intelligence is responsibility of the member states. We French, we have always cooperated extremely closely with our English counterparts. I'm certain that this will not change. I am quite optimistic, but we need not delay in reaching an agreement because our adversaries know no borders. And once again, because our citizens would not understand that on this specific issue, security issue, we are not pulling all our resources to fight together straight with face. The consequences will be disastrous for all of us. In conclusion, I would like to insist on this point. We may have differences of opinion in the economic field, but not in the field of security. We share the same stakes, the same challenges. Without cooperation, we will always be less strong. There will only be losers. And uh, even it's a more political uh, uh, speech that I'm making, but I'm sure that the pressure on the politician will be very strong and they will need at one stage to respond to this question. Because if something occurs in the UK or in, 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 on the continent, and if we are not able to exchange the right information, the right intelligence, if it is known, that would be a nightmare for all of us. Thank you. I, I was actually going to pick up then and, and go into some of the specifics of a deal, but we've got quite a few questions on, on no deal, actually, and I think that follows quite nicely what you were saying, Betty. Um, so, Julian, maybe I can turn to you first, and then I'll turn to the minister and talk about perhaps specifically an agreement with Ireland. But, Julian, we've, we've had a few questions on, you know, if we can't get a deal, a trade deal, can we have a security partnership, in your view? Um, building on, you know, what Patrick was saying, it's in both sides' interest. Um, but, you know, it's not because it's in both sides' interest that politically that's possible. What's your view on that? Uh, well, there's, uh, there are obviously linkages. There are political linkages and there are some um, practical linkages as well across different parts of the negotiations. Uh, at the outset, um, the, the UK side said, can't we do a can't we try and pursue a separate agreement on, on security for all the reasons that we've been discussing? It's shared threats, shared interest. Uh, the EU side said then, and have so far continued to take the position that you couldn't break this area off, uh, that you needed to take it as part of the overall future relationship. So. Uh, 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 that, for the moment, is the position, uh, and that means there are political linkages uh, between this and progress in other parts of the negotiation. But there are also some, some practical linkages. What you agree overall on the European, the role or the non-role of the European Court of Justice, what you agree overall on uh, the respect of fundamental rights, what you agree on data and data adequacy, as we've been discussed, discussing are very relevant in this area but not only in this area so uh, there are there are some interlinkages there uh, as well 
it remains my view that if um, you're stuck elsewhere, it really would be a good idea to come back and have a look at what might be possible in terms of cooperation in, in this area. Uh, because no deal, breaking off all cooperation, is a really bad idea for everybody uh, involved. It would break cooperation around the agencies, which has, as Rob's been describing, real everyday impact on frontline uh, policing and security cooperation. And indeed, you know, don't take our word for it. On from the UK side, uh, the National Crime Agency, representatives of some of the leading police forces like the Met have really underlined what a big impact breaking all the links uh, would have. Uh, it deprives you of uh, all the data input that we've been talking about, that Rob uh, underlined. It means, for example, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to have cooperation with EU, uh, other EU countries on knowing who's coming into our airports. That, you know, that's kind of crazy. Uh, the, the, the 30 or 40 main European EU airlines that serve flights in and out of the UK in normal times uh, represent more than 40% of the traffic coming in and out of UK airports. You don't want to cut off cooperation around that kind of flow of information. In a no-deal situation, you would have uh, no arrangements uh, around extradition, which is which is crazy and is going to have a real impact in on the ground in countries like uh, Ireland and the cooperation between Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. So you, you would need to look, I think, if we ended up ever in this um, very unwelcome uh, scenario of not being able to advance elsewhere, uh, whether there were elements of cooperation that you could pursue uh, on security. But there's been a limited discussion about how that would work so far. I think there's been some discussion amongst the practitioners, uh, but there's been a limited discussion at the political level. Uh, there was some discussion last year where it, it was on the basis of some papers from the Commission, uh, where it was basically agreed without very much, without very much discussion, in my view, uh, that uh, you would uh, not fall back to bilateral relations. Now, I just question whether that is actually realistic if we end up in that situation. Uh, but I, but I'm hoping we don't end up in that situation. I'm hoping that we're in uh, the kind of situation that we've been discussing so far in this uh, call, uh, that you are talking about the contours of a deal, the elements of cooperation, and how you might build further on those uh, in the future. Uh, just, just to finish, can I uh, now or a bit later, can I come back on, on this question of ECJ uh, judgments? Because Again, it's, it's particularly relevant in the context of, of a deal and working together in the future. I think there are some important things that we should talk about there. Yes, we'll definitely come back to the role of the ECJ and, and what that might mean also for extradition. And I had a couple of questions for uh, Sir Rob on that too. But um, on the bilateral agreement point, Minister, like Ireland's Minister for Justice, I think this week, told the Irish Parliament uh, that Ireland and the UK need a bilateral agreement uh, on data sharing to protect, you know, cross-border policing after Brexit, there's no deal, um, namely to facilitate cooperation and information sharing between police services of Ireland and Northern Ireland. You know, what's your view on this? Um, and is this something that you've been able to speak to your Irish counterparts about? 
Um, I mean, obviously, it's hugely important for us that we are able to cooperate in real time. We're different to the rest of the UK and that we do have a land border, but also that we have a land border which is sensitive um, and which has become a focus for all sorts of different activity, including terrorism and organised crime. And so we're very conscious of the good cooperation that we have. I mean, there's a lot of ongoing work um, in terms of the Organised Crime Task Force in Northern Ireland, working with the Revenue Commissioners and, and Garda Shikana in the South, um, with the National Crime Agency um, and the PSNI in Northern Ireland, um, and also working with other European um, member states in terms of trying to deal with organised crime, because I think we shouldn't be parochial about this. I mean, Northern Ireland may seem like an island off an island off the off the main um, coast of Europe, but at the end of the day, um, if people think that there's an opportunity either to um, spend the proceeds of crime and launder their money in, in those places, um, or indeed get involved in established organised crime in Northern Ireland, then they will do that and people will build those international relationships. And it seems to me um, to be going in the wrong direction if we end up breaking up the security cooperation at a time when clearly um, those who are involved in criminality are building their networks very strongly. So I think it's important that we're able to maintain that cooperation. I think we also need to be conscious that lack of cooperation and indeed lack of coordination between the UK and Ireland can lead to all sorts of other unintended consequences, whether that is creating the space for further um, organised crime and black market economy, because the lack of clarity around what any deal is going to be like creates that space in the market. Um, but also, I think just in terms of stability around the border areas and how we police those um, is also highly dependent um, I think on the relationships between um, the British government and the Irish government, and those have not been as good as I would have liked. And I think, I mean, Sir Julian will recognise from his time um, spent around Northern Ireland that it's hugely important that there are good and positive relationships because I think that that sets a context for the, the kind of the 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 cooperation that we get with communities as well um, in terms of fighting crime um, in those areas. It's important for us um, that we're able to share data in live time, but also we have to bear in mind that um, Ireland is our largest um, customer when it comes to extradition and vice versa. So most of the extradition that we deal with in Northern Ireland is um, from the Irish Republic. And for many, many years, that was an incredibly fraught process. And actually the European arrest warrant um, took a lot of the political tension away from that issue and allowed it to be dealt with in a different context. To have to now go back and start to rebuild those things, you could find situations where extradition becomes again very politically sensitive and contentious. And that was very difficult to us um, during the worst of the troubles in Northern Ireland. And it would be concerning to me if we were to regress in that direction. Certainly the Irish government, when we talk to them, are very keen that that's not the case. They have already put in place some changes in the law so that we're able to operate on some of the conventions that previously existed in the 1950s. But we do need to bear in mind that if we end up in a no-deal scenario where we fall back and we're relying on European conventions from the late 50s, that crime has moved on dramatically since then. And so to try to use tools that were useful in the 50s to deal with crime in 2020 just isn't practicable and it isn't sensible. So for us, being able to have live data sharing, to be able to have live cooperation is absolutely crucial um, in terms of securing the safety of the people on this island, um, but also the safety of the people throughout these islands and further afield in Europe. In recent days, we have seen organised crime networks 
um, from Eastern Europe who have, you know, we have been able to detect um, that they're buying property in terms of laundering money and so on um, in Northern Ireland. We've been able to see those linkages are quite strong. So what we need now is maximum cooperation. And I think that for us, it would be hugely important. So what's the last thing I would want to say is that, yes, of course, there are alternatives. We can go down the route of bilateral agreements. We can work on those with Ireland and we can put those in place. And then we can start to do that with every single one of the, the EU um, countries. But that becomes not just complex to operate, but expensive to operate. At the minute, we have this seamless system of transfer and cooperation, and it is the most efficient and effective way for us to, to do business. And my fear would be that if we aren't able to get the future security partnership put in place, um, and if we aren't able to rely on those tools that we have at the moment, whatever they're replaced by will be more complicated, more fraught, more open to challenge, and also more expensive for us to implement. And that has major consequences um, when we are dealing essentially with quite um, fixed budgets. So I think on all fronts, what we need is the maximum amount of um, security cooperation. There is the issue of whether or not the future security partnership can be decoupled um, from the rest of the negotiations. And I have huge sympathy um, as Justice Minister with those who would want to see that happen. But as Sir Julian rightly says, there are interlinkages. Data adequacy doesn't only affect justice, it also affects trade um, and it affects services. So it's not as simple as saying that you can do a deal on security, but not a deal um, on other things. Also, the context will change depending on, for example, whether we have tariff differentials, whether we have different customs arrangements and so on, that will affect the landscape in which organised crime will actually will actually exist. Um, and so we need to be conscious that the decisions we take on trade and on other relationships impact directly on the justice system. And that's one of the things that I think we have to constantly remind people. These are not two separate discussions. They are absolutely interlinked and one impacts directly on the other. It has massive impact, for example, on business if the justice landscape and the security landscape is uncertain or unclear because it impacts on their ability to comply with the law and it also potentially sets up the opportunity for the black market to undermine their legitimate business. So all of those things are interlinked, which is why I think I have sympathy, if you like, with the EU position, that we need a comprehensive deal that deals with all of those issues. But I would not want to be left in a situation where we had good progress made on the future security partnership and that was simply abandoned because we couldn't get agreement on trade. Thank you. And it seems to be the perennial problem with Brexit, where even when there's willingness to kind of, you know, cooperate, it's very difficult to isolate issues from, from each other. Uh, so, Rob, there are two questions um, for you that have come up in the chat, um, looking sort of delving into the specifics of, of No Deal. One, in, in your view, what's the immediate and most concerning impact for UK police and law enforcement agencies in the case of no deal? What is it that they should be focusing on first and preparing for? And second, you know, how feasible do you think it would be for the UK and Ireland to conclude an agreement on extradition to replace the European arrest warrant? Well, of course, the, the British Security Authority, the, the police forces, you know, will have been working on contingencies for a no deal for some time. Of course, they have. Um, and, you know, those contingencies will be well developed. Uh, they will, of course, aim to, to, to mitigate the impacts of a no deal. Um, there are alternative uh, methods available to, to ensure the police cooperation across Europe continues, and we've mentioned some of them already. 
Um, there are quite extensive networks of bilateral liaison officers, attaches, police attaches that many European countries share. Patrick will have some direct experience of this. I do as well. Earlier in my career, I was responsible for for running the UK's network of police attaches around Europe and beyond. And so I, I know about the, how effective they can be. These are experienced seasoned police officers posted to Paris, Berlin and other places. They can get the job done when you really need it. Uh, Interpol, of course, as well, is, is, is another international, unique international police organisation, obviously operating on a much more global basis. It has tools for cooperation as well. Another important caveat to bear in mind is that on national security interests, this is a very important point Patrick said, on terrorism, for example, the primary uh, mechanism for effective cooperation, including intelligence sharing, is operating outside the EU framework already. Uh, and that, of course, will continue. Um, and, and that's an important point, actually. I think increasingly there is a role, there has been a role for Europol to support that, but not in, uh, at, at the primary level. All of that said, I still think particularly to echo Minister's point, for example, in combating organised crime, cybercrime, less on terrorism, as I said, the combination of, of making all of these contingencies still work for you is still less than the sum of the current provisions. It would still have a dial down impact, to borrow Julian's phrase, in terms of what the UK is getting now. Let me just give you a couple of points um, and, and examples. If the UK police are working and, and tracking a suspect and they know that he's about to travel to France, of course you can exercise your bilateral network and ensure that you have the French authorities. Very often though, in this much more dynamic, fast, fast flowing way in which large organized crime groups operate, and of course, not least on cyber, you don't know even half the picture. You don't know where he or she might be heading. And so without the comprehensiveness of, of these EU-wide pan-European databases, for example, you lose a certain systemic resilience. If the Swedish authorities are tracking a serial sexual offender, uh, he's on the run. If they, if they know that he's due to travel tomorrow to London, of course they will alert the British authorities, no deal or deal with Brexit. But very often you don't know that. You don't know where he might turn up next. And if he does actually turn up at, at the port of Dover or the airport in Birmingham, then if you don't have access to these kind of databases like the Schengen Information System, you lose that systemic resilience. Um, and, and it's important really, in the, it's, it's difficult in the end to, to mitigate for the full consequences of that. With Ireland, I think, you know, there is, of course, as the Minister has been saying, as we all know, there is this unique character of the relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland. And, of course, um, um, the, the, the special situation in, in Northern Ireland means that, that, yes, there have always been sort of special relationships, actually, that have developed to manage the very close sharing of, of security interests between our two countries, particularly on terrorism. And earlier in my career, I've also had a lot of experience with that. I just I know just how closely bonded uh, the Irish Guard of Police are, for example, to the, the Northern Irish counterparts and indeed mainland. Um, so that gives you a certain um, framework, I think, but also a deep bonded culture of cooperation that you can certainly work on to have some kind of special uh, agreement, including on, on extradition. I think that is possible. I still think same point of systemic resilience that extradition between Ireland and the United Kingdom is only still a fragment of, of how criminals and terrorists operate. And it's still 
would be less effective than if it's part of, of, of a European uh, system, such as the European arrest warrant that we have at the now. So it's the same answer, actually, I think, Georgina. Yes, we can get something done. Yes, we can probably keep the show on the road. Is it as effective as it is now? No, I don't think it would be. Great. And that um, actually leads me to um, a question that Charles Grant from the Centre for European Reform asked. Um, and maybe I can direct this one to you, Patrick. You know, the E3 looks like it's going to play quite a significant role on sort of foreign policy corporations, particularly between obviously the UK, France and Germany. Could the E3 play a similar role on security? Um, or, you know, would the Germans worry too much that this is taking, this cooperation takes place outside of the EU institutions? Uh, you, you are speaking about uh, in, intelligence cooperation, and as uh, it was mentioned, uh, and I did too, um, it's part of the, the, the responsibility for each state, so uh, sovereignty, each state is doing uh, what he, he wants to do with his intelligence. Uh, there was in Munich a meeting between head of services, intelligence services, uh, British one, German one, and French one, and and they they, they confirmed that uh, uh, the cooperation will continue, whatever happened, because it's needed because uh, we need absolutely uh, uh, to work together, and I don't think anything will change in, in the future, and next or. Uh, in the next future and even in uh, uh, in a um, more long time. So, um, we need to separate police and justice cooperation based most of the time on European rules and intelligence cooperation. You know, uh, we are uh, working together, intelligence and security services, for a very long time and we are always exchanging and nothing will change. And uh, I, I told you before that one of the, our closest allies in the world is the British services, are uh, the British services. We, we have a, a long, long time of cooperation with them. We know each other. It's like um, I mentioned defense issue. It would be the same, you know, because uh, we are so close. So, uh, to respond once again to the question, nothing will change. The fact will be that we need to find new rules if we need to cooperate and to keep at the same standard and level the cooperation between police services and, and uh, uh, judicial uh, justice system. That's different. And that will need a much more uh, difficult negotiation between all the states and, and the UK. But once again, intelligence will not be part of this uh, this game. Uh, very quickly, before I come back to Sir Julian, because I wanted to ask him about that and also about the ruling. But he, do you think if if negotiations break down uh, the trade negotiations, do you think it would be possible for the UK and the EU to strike a security arrangement, or would we be looking at the UK striking individual, you know, bilateral deals with with different member states? Do you think it would be possible to find a, a, a to to reach a security deal with the EU um, if the trade talks break down? I express uh, what, what is. I do think that we need separate economy and security because it's very different. We we, we can have uh, some disagreement 
on uh, economy, but on security we cannot. Once again, um, there is a strong uh, uh, people that are looking more and more for security, and so they will not understand if we are not cooperating to uh, prevent crime or terrorist attack. You are either in London, in Paris, in, in Berlin, in Rome, wherever you want, nobody, no politician will be in a situation to explain that we were not in a position to avoid a crime because we need an exchange. I'm for sure. So, I've always thought that we need clearly to separate, to have a special deal on security. Economy is something different, and I'm not an economist. Great. Well, um, obviously, time is, is is of the essence there, um, and we know that there are key stumbling blocks, including the role of the European Court of Justice. So maybe, Sir Julian, I can bring you in at this point. You know, we talk about the need for an ambitious uh, security partnership, come what may, but there is that tricky thing of the European Court of Justice, and particularly the ruling that was issued this week. How do you think that interacts with, with the ambition of reaching uh, a security partnership by the end of the uh, so uh, first things first, I agree very much with some of the things that, that Rob and Patrick have just been saying about um, the need to find ways of continuing to cooperate in this area, come what may. But um, there are some there are some constraints, and one of them, as you say, is, is the court. Now, the the uh, the UK has made very clear that it doesn't want the writ of the court to run uh, as far as the UK is concerned, uh, and that's that's been accepted uh, by the EU side uh, in principle uh, and uh, therefore that means that there are certain limits around what you can do in terms of cooperation in this area on security. But key thing before we get into the, the, the nerdy detail of some of these judgments and the judgments in this field are are very difficult to follow sometimes. They're at least as difficult as the judgments on the economic and trade side. Uh, but before we get there, the, the main point I want to make is that, okay, so the UK is saying we don't want to be bound by the court, but the EU member states don't have a choice. They're still bound by the court. So when the court makes judgments in this area, that binds the member states and therefore binds what they can do and indeed what, uh, for example, their telecoms companies or their other economic actors who, who cooperate with the police can do. Uh, and that is that is a problem uh, which we're going to have to, to manage. It's a problem for the UK in trying to work out its cooperation with the EU in the future. It's actually a problem for a number of other countries uh, who, who partner with the EU on security, notably the United States. So there are some quite important judgments, which we haven't got time to go into now, which are going to play into all of this area. There's been a recent judgment that struck down the uh, data adequacy arrangements between the EU and the United States. Uh, and it was struck down because of concerns in the EU, in the court, uh, about how uh, national security activities were carried out in the United States. Uh, what, why does that matter for the UK? Well, the UK shares a lot of information with the United States. And so people are saying, well, hold on, what happens about that information that's in the UK including about EU citizens that might be shared with the United States. Uh, there's been a, a judgment about um, uh, the sharing of, of data uh, around who comes in and out of airports with uh, Canada, which changed the rules. 
and said that you couldn't keep data basically after people who traveled had left. Uh, uh, and uh, the UK actually has a slightly different approach to that. It wants to be able to keep the data for longer, as in, indeed the United States. How is that going to work? Because that judgment is binding upon European airlines. Uh, there's now this week uh, a judgment which we've referred to a couple of times on how national security should be thought of in, in the EU. So uh, there's still a big dispute. Uh, you can follow it on Twitter if you're interested about exactly what this judgment means. Uh, on the one hand, it said that you can't keep data uh, forever for national security purposes. On the other hand, it said that you can keep data if you think there is a, a, a national security or public security risk, providing there are certain safeguards. Now, uh, everything I agree with everything that Patrick said about intelligence cooperation being outside of the EU structures, but this kind of judgment has an effect because it is binding upon economic actors in the European Union. So, okay, the intelligence agency is out with uh, the, the remit of uh, this ruling, but everybody they work with, all the telecoms companies, all the other economic actors, other parts of government are within this ruling. So uh, we are, whatever happens, going to have to work with certain constraints that come from ECJ rulings even when the UK is outside of the EU, when it comes to the terms, the conditions, the limits and constraints on UK cooperation with the EU. Great. And on, on very quickly, maybe, um, so Rob, on, on the European Court of Justice, I mean, inevitably there will be a role in some form, maybe well, particularly because it's binding on, on, on member states. Um, does that, you know, does that mean in terms of particularly the European arrest warrant, it, do we have to think about something completely different? Is that being ruled out or do you think there can be a way around that? Well, I'm not sure the other member states are, th are thinking they need something completely different. You know, they, they will still continue to rely on a system, the European arrest warrant, actually, that's proved to be quite effective, very valuable and far more effective, actually, than the bilateral uh, extradition arrangements that, that preceded it. Um, so, I mean, there's the problem here, of course, that um, to echo the point Julian made, you know, that this is, uh, you know, court judgments are binding on, on, the, on the remaining 27. Um, there is also this binding um, culture of acceptance of the way in which these rather effective arrangements like the European Arrest Warrant are working at the moment. So, this is difficult, I think, uh, for us to find uh, a new system. I don't know. We, there's that sense of ambition we talked about earlier, that maybe there is a way in which the UK, in rather unprecedented ways, can still have some form of access to either the AW itself or something equivalent. I don't know, but we would need something um, if, if we're to keep that that major part of, of police cooperation also, also functioning after 1st of January. And would we need that to be agreed before the end of the year? Well, I do think that more generally here on security, Patrick's right, of course, that um, this really matters and we've got to get it right. Um, I do think that there is a possibility of getting something right that just keeps the lights on and keeps the business going as part of a wider agreement uh, that can act almost as a bridge to the development of a progressively uh, stronger 
relationship in the years to come. Um, and let, let's let's think about what we need to do uh, just to have business continuity to a certain level. But let's let, let's allow our ambition, therefore, to go beyond that in the years to come. Because I do think that the UK will continue, albeit in a different form, to have such an important role to play uh, in the future of European security. And, and we must keep our minds and imagination open as to what that might look like and, and seize every opportunity, not just between now and the end of this year, but beyond that as well, to strengthen that cooperation for the good of all. Great. And we're fast running out of time. So I'm going to, uh, I have one final question. I'm sorry for all the great questions that came in I wasn't able to ask. But um, if you were advising now Lord Frost or Michel Barnier uh, on the security relationship, what would be your top piece of advice? Maybe Patrick, we'll start with you. If you were talking to Michel Barnier, what would you say to him? Good luck. I repeat, uh, once again, uh, I think we need to divide economic issues and security issues. And uh, um, Julian talked about the, 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 the Court of Justice uh, and uh, the judgment will affect effectively uh, the work of the, the, the intelligence and security services uh, on the continent. But coming back to our question, George, now. Uh, I think, I'm sure that we, we can find a way to maintain the level of the cooperation on police and, and justice and intelligence matters, because we all need to be effective. And my view is that, once again, our government will support the responsibility if we are weakening the system. The system is quite a good one. We can find the right way, even there are uh, 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 some uh, um, judgments of the courts, European courts, etc. But on a daily basis, the police officers, uh, the people in charge of security, they are working very closely and they need to continue. And if we are putting some barriers to stop it, or to damage it, we will be all loser. So I will once again say to Mr. Barnier, put on the side security issues, reach an agreement, economic issues is very different. And I don't know if I'm clear, but that's my view. No, that's uh, that's no, definitely clear. And hopefully Paris and Berlin and other countries, uh, capitals are listening to. Minister, what would be your top piece of advice? I think what I would want to say um, is that whilst for us in Northern Ireland, um, a trade deal, a comprehensive trade deal is enormously important um, in terms of ensuring that there is that kind of free flowing movement. Um, but I think beyond that, um, we also need to recognise that the future security partnership is essential. So, you know, trade is important, but security is essential. And I would say to them to prioritise getting a deal um, on security, because that is the thing that will really make a tangible difference to people's lives um, in a significant way. And I think if we can get agreement um, on the future security partnership, then we create the context in which perhaps the working relationships are able to develop so that we can do the rest of the deal that we need to do. Because 
Like whatever about Brexit, we have to have strong relationships um, with other members of the European Union. Um, they are our neighbours. They are our closest neighbours. We share the same values um, and the same ambitions for our people. And we need to find ways of working together beyond the current um, the current situation. But for me, I suppose that would be my message. Yes, a trade deal is important, but getting the future security partnership agreed is absolutely vital. And Serginian, maybe the last word quickly to you. What would be your advice? Well, I agree with Naomi, so that's easy. Thank you so much to our panel. We've run over time, so I, I, I will stop here. Um, thank you for your time this morning and to you all our viewers and listeners. There will be a recording available so you'll be able to uh, listen to this back. And uh, yes, the next weeks are going to be crucial. Uh, we will see what happens. And let's hope that not only you listeners are listening, but also um, our negotiators here in London, in Brussels, and of course, key uh, decision makers in EU capitals. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Music